This episode brought to you by Audible, and today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 66. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever platform that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The power of positive thinking is something that we hear quite often, not only in sports, but also in life. Now, our guest this episode, John Gordon, might not have invented the idea of positive thinking, but he sure has inspired millions of readers and people all over the world through his teachings about leadership, teamwork, and of course, positivity. A graduate of Cornell University, where he was a member of the lacrosse team, he also holds a master's degree in teaching from Emory University. He's a multi-best-selling author of such books like The Energy Bus, The Carpenter, Training Camp, The Power of Positive Leadership, and he's been featured on multiple TV shows and magazines as he continues to share his principles to Fortune 500 companies and also sports teams throughout college and pros. Now here's episode 66 with John Gordon. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And speaking of podcasts, you're jumping into the world of podcasting now with Positive University. So how's that going? It's going good. It's uh, something I'm not used to doing. I'm, I'm learning how to interview people. I'm usually the one speaking. So I'm having to learn to ask questions and listen. But you know what? I'm learning a lot and, and really enjoy it. Well, I just think it's another tool that a lot of people will utilize in terms of positivity and the message that you're spreading. And one of the obvious ways that you're doing that is with your books. So where are we in that process for 2018 book? I'm thinking about what I'm going to write next. I'm not quite sure what that's going to be, but I know that um, I have about two in mind that I'm thinking about writing. So I'm really just trying to get clear on which one it's supposed to be. And then around December, I'll start the writing process. What's that process like for you, though, in terms of how are you setting time aside just based on your hectic schedule? Well, usually during December, things really slow down. And so it's a great time to get clear on writing. And every morning I get up and I write and take a walk, get some more ideas, come back, write some more. Usually finished by noon. And then um, at night, I read what I wrote. I edit what I wrote and then get up the next morning and begin again. So around this time, I'm just thinking and reflecting and ideas are coming. So it sort of, you know, really starts to uh, percolate and it starts to just like grow inside me of what I need to write about. And then come December, it's like all just about putting it out. That's where the true magic happens, right? Where you put it all on paper. Yeah, it's, 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 it's painful a lot of times. It's like giving birth, although I don't know what giving birth is like. <laughs> My wife would be like, there's no way you know what giving birth is <laughs> exactly. like. Exactly. We're very careful when you create that analogy. 
And she's right, but there's a pain that comes where because you feel like something is inside you that you need to get out there. And then when you birth it, when you write it, uh, there's definitely relief. Well, obviously, all the books that you have out there have been huge success. But I think one that gets overlooked at times is Hard Hat, 21 Ways to Be a Great Teammate. And it details the tragic story of George Biardi, who was killed as a lacrosse player at Cornell and actually killed on the field. And as a former Cornell lacrosse player, how fulfilling was that for you to write that book and share that story and the impact that it's had on that whole program? I think it was it was meaningful in just so many ways. It was a book that I had to write. I didn't really have a choice in writing this book. I knew it was a book that I was meant to write. I played 11 years before George did. I never met George, but after he passed away, his story became legendary throughout the program. And you just heard about George and his impact on the program. Well, I talked to the coach who coached him. I talked to the trainer who was his trainer. He was also my trainer. I talked to his family, his friends, and the more I learned about him, the more I was just blown away at the kind of teammate he was. I was even invited to speak at one of his dinners long before I thought about uh, writing the book. There's a foundation in his name, Mario St. George Boyardi Foundation. And I just, again, like over the years, it just became this like thing that wouldn't go away. And I had to write the story. And so I, I got permission from his parents and that was hard. Like they didn't want a story written at first, but I knew this story needed to be told and I didn't want to make money from it. So I decided to donate all my proceeds to his foundation. I couldn't make a dime off of his life. This was a young man at 22 who jumped in front of a shot to prevent a team from scoring, who got hit in the chest with a ball and died on the field. I mean, just so tragic was gonna go work for Teach for America in the Teach for America program in the Sioux Falls, South Dakota region, Pine Ridge Reservation. So this was a kid who was very privileged, who had a lot, but no one knew he had a lot, but he wanted to give everything away and serve and sacrifice for those who had nothing. And he had his meeting that day with Teach for America. So he was so excited. And then that night, he dies. So after his death, the way he lived, the way he worked, the way he approached lacrosse and being a great teammate just had such an influence on the young men, on his teammates, that they would go on to play like him, to honor him, to be the kind of teammate he was. And now, you know, many years later, they're like 33, 34 years old, they live their lives based on him. Like they still talk about him to this day. Many of them have named their sons George, and he just had such a profound impact on their lives because of the kind of character he had, the kind of teammate he was. And I realized like this guy is like the greatest teammate that I've ever heard about. This is the greatest teammate that I believe ever lived in terms of the impact he had on 22 year olds who are now grown men and the people he impacted. He impacted coaches. And I think also the way he died and the legacy he left had, had an impact. So after I've written this book, it's now you know getting out there. And I'm receiving all these emails and notes from people who are impacted by George. I mean, young kids who want to be like George. Doc Rivers said it was his favorite book in the uh, LA Times. Uh, when it first came out, he read the book. A lot of coaches have read it, shared it with their teams. And so George is continuing to 
to leave a legacy and, and make an impact on, on people's lives even now. And so his lessons continue. And there are lacrosse programs across the country that, you know, are focusing on the number 21. That was George's number. Now, here's a really cool thing. Penn State played Cornell in Maryland. The coach of Penn State is now Jeff Tambroni. Jeff Tambroni was the coach of Cornell and was George's coach. He's the one who really gave me a lot of great information and a lot of insight as I wrote this book. So Jeff is now the coach of Penn State. They're playing Cornell in Maryland. George is from Maryland, so his hometown. And they have a special game where they're, where they're playing there. It's during the season. It's just a special site, a neutral site where they're playing. Penn State is winning. Cornell comes back in a, in a furious way, in a passionate way, and wins the game. Well, it turns out that the series, based on Cornell's win, is now tied at 21 games for Penn State and 21 games for Cornell. Amazing. 21 each, that win in Maryland. Jeff's the coach of Penn State. When I saw those numbers, I couldn't believe it. And I got goosebumps. Did you get goosebumps? Yes. Yeah, and George was number 21. I shared that message with Jeff Tambroni. He said, well, that makes the loss a lot easier. Of course. <laughs> to swallow. But a lot of people have 21 sightings from George's team. I mean, people see 21 all the time. His name was Mario St. George Boyardi. And so to me, there's a lot more to the story than just George. It was a, it was a person who was saintly in many ways and continues to have a, an impact beyond this world that we can't comprehend. And I think that's why I was meant to tell this story. I didn't have a choice. I think George was, uh, was nudging me to do it. Even though George was the kind of person that would never want a story written about him. His parents say, I mean, literally they were, he would be like, just, just like cringing that there was a story told about him because he never wanted media, never wanted attention, didn't want press. He always wanted to be about his team. That's an amazing story, and obviously you were meant to write that book. Now, a lot of people obviously know John Gordon as the guy of positivity, and but what about going back growing up, and how did sports become such a major part of your life? I played all sorts of sports. I grew up just playing sports and was active. I played uh, football, baseball, basketball. In ninth grade, started playing lacrosse, so that would have a big impact on my life, playing lacrosse in, in college at Cornell University. But yeah, I would just say sports were a huge part of my life. It was pretty much everything to me, being an athlete. I was the high school basketball point guard on my team junior year, uh, started running back uh, junior year, then got benched because I fumbled, <laughs> and, uh, which was a tough moment. You, know, you never forget those moments. Senior year, I have to come back, earn my starting spot. I remember just like training all summer fighting my way to get back into the starting position, get injured senior year, but still had a, a, a great year. Was recruited for football to college, but decided, you know, my body is taking a beating and a pounding, uh, you know, knee injuries and so forth, back injuries from getting hit. I said, you know, lacrosse, I think is, you know, it's a tough sport, but I think it's probably better for the long run. So I decided to play lacrosse and then basketball, I gave up senior year to focus on lacrosse, knowing that I wasn't going to play basketball in college. So, but again, I was, I was a good athlete. I wasn't a, a great athlete, but I would say it was, I was a division one level athlete, just not a professional level athlete. Which sport did you love the most? If I had to pick one sport that I just loved the most, probably basketball. 
just loved playing basketball. My brother was 6'2". I'm 5'8". I don't know what happened to me. I mean, <laughs> why couldn't I get his height, right? But um, but we always played one-on-one in the backyard, played friends one-on-one all the time. And you know, I was a pretty good good player. We'd go to the parks all the time with my friend who played in college. So we'd go play against great competition. You know, just, just really loved basketball. Enjoyed playing lacrosse. I would say, though, also being a running back was probably – Probably my favorite thing in terms of just, um, you know, nothing like scoring a touchdown, nothing like just, you know, just making moves and making people miss. What about other schools that you were looking at when you decided to go to Cornell to play lacrosse? Yeah, I was looking at Yale to play football. I was recruited there, went up on a recruiting visit, uh, Lehigh Division One, AA, I believe at the time, was recruited there to play uh, football as well. And then um, Georgetown. Went to Georgetown to to visit there for football as well. I, I think I was all yeah I was all league my senior despite getting injured. Had a, had a great junior year too until I got benched. And then uh, I had a lot of good film. And so back then we didn't have the film services today. So you know what I did? I put two VCRs together and and made a highlight film from the VCRs and. <laughs> sent that out to colleges. And after I sent it out, I started getting all these requests because, you know, they saw, okay, this kid's fast and he, and he can run and, and, he, and he's got moves. And so, um, so I, I got a lot of calls after that. So I was actually my own marketing person. Even then, no one told me what to do. I just sort of figured out that I had to do it. So marketing has been in your DNA from the very beginning. I think so. And, and having to prove myself. And then even, um, even in terms of, of lacrosse. Like, I never thought I'd play lacrosse at college at that level because junior year, I didn't see the field. We had really good players that went to Carolina and other schools that were really strong. And I only picked up the sport freshman year and sophomore year I had a hernia. So I missed all of my sophomore year. So lacrosse, you got to have a good stick. And I did not have a great stick. Well, junior year, I don't see the field at all. And I remember that summer going, okay, you know, I want to be really good my senior year. I'm going to really practice on lacrosse. I, I'm going to get better. So I asked Dan Donnelly, who wind up going to Carolina. He was my high school teammate when he was a senior. I was a, a junior. So what should I do? He said, work the wall. If you, if you want to be a lacrosse player, work the wall every day. Just throw the ball against the wall, righty, lefty, work on your stick. So I did. I mean, I'm talking all summer, all fall, well, f- football season, and then no basketball. And all basketball season, I worked on my stick. So I go back now, senior year, getting ready for the spring season. And I've been working on my stick. And I told coach, hey, coach, I want to be first midfield this year. He laughed at me. Like laughed because <laughs> I never saw the field junior. He's like, come on, you? Like I was a good athlete but didn't have the stick. Well, I said, coach, I'm telling you, I've been working on my stick. He goes, all right, we'll, we'll give you a shot. So first scrimmage, he puts me in face off. I face off. I take the ball. I come down. I score. Wind up scoring a bunch of goals. And I get recruited to go play at, at Cornell. One of winning all county, never could have imagined it. So it really was a God thing that I was supposed to go to Cornell. But I got recruited to Cornell, which is pretty wild because Coach Moran saw me or heard about me playing football and he liked football players. So even when he recruited me, he didn't think I was a very good lacrosse player either, but he heard I was a good athlete and he liked recruiting athletes. And so he saw this uh, in the paper, this one game where I had like 169 yards on eight carries. And so he winds up recruiting me there. So glory days, that's my story. That's my past, you know. I love hearing the glory days. But Was there ever <laughs> thoughts about playing football and lacrosse at Cornell? 
No, well, yeah, there was actually. I went to Cornell and I was going to do both. And um, I got to the equipment room and I was considered a walk on at, Cor- at Cornell for football. But lacrosse, I'm being treated like a superstar. <laughs> and being the freshman that I was, like I wanted to be feel like a superstar. But I also went into Coach Moran's office. I said, hey, Coach, I'm going to play football too. He said, you know, kid, if you play football, you don't play lacrosse. You might not see the field in lacrosse if you want to do both. And I really thought about that. I said, you know, I, I, I want to be good at one thing. And the way I was being treated with football, I said, you know, I'm going to play lacrosse. Now, the coach at the time was, was, was Jimmy Hoffer, who is now the quarterback coach at Iowa State. So I go to Iowa State to see Matt Campbell, to see some of the coaches, and I'm walking through the halls, and there's Jimmy Hoffa, and I gave him a hard time for not recruiting uh, people. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty oh, funny. Of course. I love that. Yeah, it was pretty funny to be able to do that. Now, I've never – you know, I speak to Clemson every year. I, I need to share my, my, my highlight tape sometime with the Clemson football team because I don't think they know that I can actually – that I was actually a pretty good player. I know Coach Sweeney would love that. Yeah, I, I need to share that this year before I speak. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, nowhere on their level, but but pretty good for, for high school football. Hey, and I think Coach Sweeney would try to get you out there on the basketball court as well. He's a huge basketball fan. I know. I want to play him sometime. I, yes. You know, I heard he plays basketball. I, I think I could take him. <laughs> Dabo, if you're, if you're listening to this, I think I could take him. That's right. I like the challenge for sure. Now, what about, though, you're at Cornell and you're now graduating where was the mindset of why you wanted to be a politician? Yeah, I wanted to go into um, politics. I was a government economics major. I interned for a congresswoman during uh, during my college years, one summer the internship program. And it's just something I, I thought I wanted to do. And after running for city council of Atlanta and losing, walking door to door to 7,000 houses, I knew that it wasn't something I was meant to do. And so what did you learn from losing that election that helped you get to the point where you are today? Yeah, I learned that sometimes you have to lose a goal to find your destiny. So at the time, I thought my future was over because I lost this election because I wanted to be in politics. And then years later, right, I become a writer and speaker and realized that's what I was meant to do and born to do. So instead of arguing over politics and potholes with city council and traffic lights and local laws, I get to make an, a difference and impact people. And it's a much more positive line of work as we see all the politics that's going on right now in the country. <laughs> that's right. You know, again, I loved politics because of also the policy and the ability to impact. And now we see what it is now. And this is not what I was interested in growing up. And I think a lot of young people are going to be turned off that politics is now a big show. It's a big negative show. And it's a big battle rather than how can we make the country better? How can we create policy that makes a difference, that makes an impact? And we're, not, we're rarely talking about policy these days. It's about everything else. So I'm glad I'm not in politics. And I learned that. I also learned you know, perseverance. I learned the fact that I can walk door to door to 7,000 homes. And to be able to do that over the course of an entire election and meet everybody and connect, you know, what a great opportunity to discover the grit that you have within you to persevere. So when it came time to go do the writing and speaking, I realized I was doing the same thing. You know, I was campaigning in a way, but now instead of trying to win an office and gain power, I was trying to 
find and create a way to to empower others and to share this message with others. Also became much more others focused instead of self-focused. So when I was running for election, it was all about me trying to get elected. But when I found my calling as a writer and speaker, I realized that that my purpose is to inspire and empower others and encourage others. And in that process, you really find true power. So the more you give it away, it actually comes back to you in, in a positive way. And it was on that journey, like I, you know, from self-absorbed to someone who wanted to make a difference. That's where spiritually I, I became a follower of Jesus and, you know, became a Christian and my life just started to change from there, from, from the inside out. And it's amazing how, you know, when I wanted to be successful, I wasn't. And when I wanted to make a difference, I somehow got successful. And it just shows you that for God, it's all about what are you doing to helping others and how you make an impact. And that's what it's really about. Yeah, and about significance rather than success. And yes, yeah, much much more about significance and making a difference. When you look back, also through this journey, didn't happen overnight, obviously. So, how did sports and what you learned through sports help you through this journey of where you are? So, when I speak to college athletes, which I do often, I talk about the fact that everything. I am today is because of sports and I learned through sports not to let the opinion of others define you, not to let rejection to define you, not to let failure to define you, but let it all refine you to help you become who you're meant to be. So I was told so many times in sports that I wasn't good enough, that I didn't belong, that I couldn't make it. And I learned not to listen to those opinions, but just to be positive and work hard and be a great teammate and have the grit to keep moving forward. So every lesson I learned in sports, I then applied in my career as a writer and speaker. Energy bus, rejected by over 30 publishers. Getting out speaking in the beginning. No one wants to hear speak. No one cares what you have to say. <laughs> At first you speak and people don't like what you have to say or they said he's not going to make it. I was told that by several people that you know he's not going to do well in this career. So I learned that you don't listen to those opinions. Just go out there and share what you're meant to share, do what you're meant to do, and just continue to work hard. And over time, great things happen. So I learned everything about that from sports. Now, what about with your kids? Are there times you're obviously very positive, and, <laughs> but you're a parent and life has its challenges. Were there times where your kids were, Dad, we hear you. We need to be positive, but come on now. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tough oh, yeah. for us I mean, to always be like, positive. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not naturally positive. So people need to know that I have to work at it. So I'm not people think I'm Mr. Positive and I'm really not. I actually go towards the negative. What my daughter one time came up to me and handed me my book and said, Dad, you need to read your own book. <laughs> and then she wrote her college essay, and her college essay said, When I was young, my mom struggled with her health and my dad struggled with himself. But I watched as my dad worked to become a more positive person over the years. And then he started to write and speak and started to share this message with others. And I saw people change and he changed. So if they can change, the world can change. And it, it did bring tears to my eyes because I saw how my one decision to be a more positive person not only made me better, but it made everyone around me better. And that's why I think I'm so effective with this message because it's very real because it's not Pollyanna positive because I'm not naturally positive. I know my kids actually don't want to hear what I have to say. They tune me out a lot. And uh, sometimes my wife, you know, 
I say she blocks me like you could do on social media. <laughs> she physically just some, somehow like energetically blocks me. She blocking me right now. And, um, and that's okay. The, what I do is I keep sharing it, keep reinforcing, keep sharing the message. And again, I wasn't always positive. Sometimes like with my kids, I joked, I said, I said, you know, right now I'm going to open up a can of positive energy on you. And, um, you know, so we'd have some fun with that. Oh, that's great. Well, that is real life, though, in all reality, is that you do have a message that you can speak to the truth of that life is not always easy and you do have to work at it, which obviously you're doing as well. Yeah. And, and, and I wrote like I wrote in The Power of Positive Leadership, like I, what I wrote about Dabo Sweeney and Alan Mulally and, and, and great leaders like that. You have to have love and accountability. Like, you know, you're not always going to be positive, positive, but if there's love and then you hold the people accountable to the values, the culture, the process, and the standards of what you expect, that's the key. And sometimes that may not seem very positive to others, but you have to do it in a positive way or, or do it to the most positive way that you can. Looking back for you growing up, what athletes did you look up to? You know, I loved Michael Jordan growing up. So obviously he was someone who, who I admired greatly. Uh, loved the New York Yankees growing up. Loved Greg Nettles and Thurman Munson and uh, Reggie Jackson and, and, and people like that. So really admired them. Uh, Ricky Henderson thought he was, uh, you know, one of the best baseball players I've ever seen. Football, Herschel Walker, um, Tony Dorsett. Until I met Tony and asked for his autograph and he blew me off. <laughs> And so, Tony, if you ever hear this, you blew me off. Uh, but Herschel was like so nice and encouraging and like took time with me. He was during football camp and I'll never forget like how warm and friendly he was. It shows you as a kid, you remember these things. And to this day, right, I'm 47. I, you know, love Herschel and Tony said, I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you right. know, to, to, to this day. So, uh, but I looked up to, to people like that. And, um. You know, I, I really liked a lot of the running backs, you know, because, again, as a running back, that's who I who I root for. So now, now I love uh, just watching quarterbacks and the way they think and how they process and, and how they go about, you know, how they go about doing what they do. It's so cerebral that it's fun to also work inside the, the mental aspect of things as well. Yeah. And how they lead a team. Yeah. And it's 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 all leadership again. But there's also great leaders on the defense as well. And I admire, you know, that's the thing I love doing what I do because I get to meet a lot of these great athletes, but more importantly, they're great leaders and great people. And you see how they lead and how they connect with their teams. And it's, it's powerful to see the impact they can have. Now, obviously you've talked to a lot of athletes, a lot of coaches. What was the moment that you were starstruck? I think it was the first moment that I spoke to the Jacksonville Jaguars and, um, first time ever speaking to a team, 2007, Jack Del Rio brought me in to speak to the team. And I would say it was when I first met Jack first time. He read the energy bus. It had just come out. Never thought anyone would read it. Now I get a call from Jack Del Rio <laughs> asking to come down and meet with him. So that was that was definitely a, a strange feeling. And then going in and speaking to the team, I remember walking. Uh, it was a, it was basically the the room the room was slanted, so you had to walk down the stairs or down the ramp as you walked down to the front. And as I walked down, Mike Tice was sitting there, and he knew I was from Long Island. And as I walked by him, he went, Strong Island, just like that. <laughs> as I walked out, I'm like nervous, and I hear Strong Island. <laughs> so I get down there and spoke in front of the team. And, you know, Fred Taylor, Maurice Jones-Drew was there. And, again, being the first time, probably that was the moment. But then after that, you know, it was just something like, okay, like 
like let's let's share the message. And um, Falcons the following year, Matt Ryan was a rookie, so got a chance to meet a lot of those guys early on in their career. And then you know again working with NBA teams and and uh, Major League Baseball teams, whether it's the Dodgers or Pirates or Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, first time meeting Russell Westbrook was was really cool. I really always admired the way he plays and the passion he has. So again, to meet him was great. But again, it's not, um, I've never been starstruck, I think, except for that first moment. After that, you're like, okay, I have to share something that will make a difference. It's not about who's in the room. They're people, they're facing challenges, and hopefully I can encourage them and inspire them. And just say one thing that would make a difference. That's, that's my goal. And why do you think your book has become so popular within sports? Like, I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's only God, only God knows. I think it's, it's, um, I can't explain this. It's definitely your life shouldn't make sense, but for the Holy Spirit and for God. And um, I think God is pretty much uh, in control. And so for me to be able to do this is, is beyond what I ever thought or would ever imagine. So all I could say is I write and think very simply and maybe haven't been an athlete. I also think like an athlete. Um, I think like a coach. And so maybe I'm able to put things in ways that they resonate with and uh, people resonate with. So even though while I was speaking to these teams, other teams and organizations and coaches were reading the book and I had no idea that they were reading it. So it was just getting around and it wasn't like I was trying to go out and do this. Cause a lot of people say, well, how do you get to speak to all these teams? Like I want to do that. And I wasn't actively trying to do it. It just happened. And that is obviously a God thing. Yeah. Because if you're not trying to do it and it happens, you know, a lot of times you go after something, but you know, your calling will often find you. You just have to put yourself out there. And what words of wisdom has helped you over your life? in terms of that you lean on any phrases, mottos, quotes, or just life advice? Yeah. Three words that I wrote about in the carpenter, love, serve, and care. You don't focus on building your business. Just love, serve, and care, and your business will exponentially grow. As a leader, love, serve, and care. The people around you, if you do that, you love them, you serve them, you show you care, you're going to be a great leader. Customer service, love, serve, care. Sales, love, serve, care. Coaching, love, serve, care. If you incorporate these three words into your life and you live with those three words, you'll be very effective in whatever you do. So for me, it's like just showing up every day and doing the work. And um, The Power of Positive Leadership, The Carpenter, The Energy Bus, like those books, I write those books in, in, in what I think is important, but also like what I, what I want my kids to read you know, years from now. When they're older, I write what I wish I knew then that I know now. And so I'm writing to my former self. I'm writing to my kids when they're older and I'm writing to what I think is important about leadership. So that's the framework in which I write about. And so a lot of times what I write, I learn and what I learn, I write. I love that concept and simple words. And so finishing up here, John, going back to Michael Jordan, we're both the same age. We grew up in the Michael Jordan era. So where do you stand, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Well, I, I put my stand out there on Twitter and got all sorts of backlash <laughs> from what I thought. And I'm like, all right, I don't want to be divisive. Like, this is not a big deal. But I loved what several people said recently. They said, you know, why do we have to compare when you know that Jordan was the best of his time, Kobe was the best of his time, and LeBron is now the best of 
our time now. And so when you can appreciate their greatness for what they did when they did it, there's greatness there. Now, I asked a good friend of mine, Brendan Sir, Brendan, longtime NBA coach, incredible human being. Hey, who was the greatest? Like, you would know. He said, I can't compare errors. You just can't compare errors. But if I had to pick one, I mean, I saw Jordan. You're going to make me pick and not get political. But if you, if I, I saw Jordan, I, I watch LeBron. My personal opinion, again, you may differ, but I do think LeBron is the greatest in terms of what he's had to do with the teams he's had. And people say, yeah, but Jordan was playing against Malone and Stockton and these other teams and Bird and Magic. Yeah, but, you know, it looks like Golden State had to build a whole team of five guys to beat LeBron. <laughs> like they had to bring in four superstars together, fall, four all-stars and, 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 and another player. You know, I don't think all five, I don't think five are all-stars. Maybe, maybe five are. Say four to five all-stars, several future Hall of Famers to beat one guy, LeBron. To me, that means that this guy is the greatest. And then the way you watch him play, size, talent, ability, skill, taking nothing from Jordan. I think Jordan was, like, if you said Jordan was the greatest, I'd be okay with that too. Like, I, if someone said Jordan's the greatest, yeah, he, I, he could be as well. I just think in my own mind, I think LeBron is just the best of all time. I think we're obviously splitting hairs because both of them are probably the two most transcendent players in all of basketball history. But but, but I didn't see Bill Russell, Bill Russell because, because I know. there are people that said Bill Russell, if you watched him play and what he did, he was the greatest. So – Again, I think it's. It, I wish we could actually get them to play <laughs> each other. I, I would love to see Jordan and LeBron one on one. Like that would be fun to watch. To see them go in their prime, head to head, like those old boxing things they used to be able to do, and see who would win. I would love to see them go at it one on one against each other in a game and see how they would do it. That would be really cool to see. Well, the one thing I do know also, John, is that what you're doing is transcendent. You're impacting a lot of people's lives and you've impacted my life. And then obviously just being here on the podcast with me on my podcasting journey. So, John, I can't thank you enough. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for the fun talk today. It was a lot of fun just to just to let it all out. Many of us have learned that striving for success in life and in sports is not always easy. And just like we learned from John, being positive isn't always easy and it does require work. And that's coming from someone that seems to exude positivity effortlessly. Now, maintaining a positive mindset is crucial in sports, and I would imagine that's one of the reasons why John and his messages and principles resonate so well with athletes and sports teams. But truth be told, it might just be because of three simple words, love, serve, and care. Now, that finishes Episode 66, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.